0: Bam 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 Da 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 da, 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 da ba, 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 Food waste. <laughs> Don't waste your food. Eat it for breakfast.
1: Yum. Hello and welcome to an idiot's guide to saving the world, the podcast for anyone who cares about building a better world but doesn't know where to start. I'm Luiso Matinga.
0: and I'm Gail Galley. In this series, we use the United Nations Plan for a Better World, aka the Global Goals, to help us identify who's already chipping away at the big problems and to see how average Joes like me, and me, can join in to become a positive force. Each week, we look at one of the 17 and meet the people finding
1: solutions to achieve the Global Goals. In this episode, why is there still hunger in the world? What can we learn from indigenous food knowledge and how do we change the way we farm?
0: Plus, we have a prize-winning solution to food waste.
1: Hi Gail, here we are, back at it, saving the world again. Have we learned anything from our previous episodes? Are we eating seaweed?
0: I'm constantly eating seaweed, (laughs) though, because I'm very mindful (laughs) about what a brilliant superfood it is. Listen, I'm sorry I don't sound... Like I've been eating seaweed. Maybe I've got a terrible cold, right? If I'd been eating seaweed, maybe this wouldn't have happened to me. It's a superfood, right?
1: It really starts in the stomach, Gail. Your stomach is your health. It's your food that you eat. I mean, like I just bought my groceries yesterday and my fridge is full. This morning I started my day off with uh, leftovers. Which... Do you? Well yeah. On the
0: regular? you you Is that a breakfast habit of yours then or just because we were doing this episode?
1: Oh yeah, yeah. We Our breakfast is mostly whatever we can put together of stuff in the fridge. This morning I had, um, two days ago I made a broth and then I, I sieved the, obviously the, the carrots and everything into a little container, put that in the fridge. There was leftover quinoa with some other veggies on the side. And so I mixed those up, took the brothy bits and then the quinoa and fried them up, threw an egg on top of it. I don't know if that has a name, Gail. That's a definite. Yes, it does. It's disgusting. Disgusting. How is it that disgusting? Oh, that's what you have for your yeah, breakfast. Yeah, it was solid. Really, it's a high fiber, high protein breakfast. Oh, I know.
0: No, it's a superfood, but just breakfast, really. Old yeah. soup.
1: Not, no, not the soup wow.
0: part. The, the pulp. <laughs> None of these words are getting better. <laughs> solid pulp. So you drain the broth. Okay, the soggy vegetables that were in the stock you had fried up with an egg. It's really good. I Don't disagree with leftovers. And I know that of all the food that gets made in the world, we waste a third. So I'm very pro eating them again. I'm just questioning your choice of
1: daily habits. Which part of that is questionable, Gail?
0: The scheduling. It's just the scheduling. I think a refried quinoa broth is delicious. She lied. (laughs) But if you are going to eat that, maybe I'd eat that after 12 o'clock.
1: That that doesn't make sense the, the, Even the idea of breakfast Is just a weird western thing No one else is really eating breakfast I'm really just trying to save the world By not wasting food Breakfast is a western idea That's weird for everybody else Is it? Yeah it is Most people got up And just got some work done Before the sun was so hot They got burnt <laughs> in the midday Midday we're chilling in the house Having our Having a brunch Having a lovely mimosa brunch While while doing some weaving <laughs>
0: breakfast for days in this part I mean like it could honestly go on for the entire weekend I love it but it would definitely have a definite set of ingredients and they would not include quinoa
1: no man I think we haven't I think we have to change the way we eat we do. I think that's that's a that's a big thing some of us don't even look at the f- the food we waste or where our food comes from or you know how our food is made so I think i got a feeling this episode is going to be a lot about changing our ways of consuming to actually aid in the global hunger situation.
0: I'm afraid you are right. We are all needing to look at how we consume our food and we need to waste less because this episode is all about global goal number two, zero hunger. And we are going to cover the obvious meaning of that. Why are people running out of food in the world when there's so much abundance? But we also get into food waste, food health, like soil. It's all connected.
1: So, first up, let's get a really good picture of why we're still talking about world hunger in 2022 and what the various causes are. Let's listen back to our conversation with the Director of Communications and Advocacy for the United Nations World Food Program, Corinne Woods. <music>
2: I don't want to be the sort of doom monger, but things are not great. Things are not great. You know, the hope that we had that we would take a trajectory from 2015 through a journey where we would every year see a reduction in the number of people who are hungry, the number of people on the edge of starvation, none of that is a good journey. So we're, we're talking, you know, 811 million people who are hungry, go to bed hungry every night 45 million people are on the edge of famine and in the middle of it you have this increase 135 million pre-covid to 283 million on the march towards starvation so that's where we are and let me tell you why you've got climate change you guys have, have talked about climate change Climate change is is not the future, it's the reality today. Add that to conflict. And in many places, you've got conflict and climate coming in together. Then you add COVID. You know, if you're a small business that was sort of just getting by, you're a tuk-tuk driver in a Mexico, and suddenly COVID locks down, you're going to go from getting by to being hungry. And then you've got costs. The costs of food the costs are driving up which means the cost in the marketplace is more expensive but for us who are just moving food around the world i mean it's not just food because we give a lot of cash for the world food program costs are going up so you've got this conflict climate costs covid all coming together to today to create the perfect storm we as the world food program face an incredible funding crisis and we're having actually to take from the hungry to feed the starving so while it's terrible we do have a sort of crossroads moment if we properly invest in the resilience of communities not just feed them but their resilience that means that 811 million the 283 million people can start walking back towards a world in which they see their own
1: development. I would love to know, like, because when people talk about, and I love that you brought up that climate change is something we're currently living and people think it's something that's going to happen in the future when the ice has already melted. But knowing that we are currently in the change and we have to change, what are the kinds of changes that you are seeing in terms of building resilience and the way we live with our food distribution systems that excite you about The new world of food and food resilience.
2: I think that what we're starting to see is people being much more intentional and mindful about not just the choice of the food that they have on their plate, not the Instagram thing, but what the relationship is to those who grow it and what that journey is, that journey of food, whether that's food waste, which is massive, but whether it's also the choices of the food that they buy. And while, you know, in some ways you'd say that whole kind of locally bought artisanal stuff, what does that have to do with people who are thinking about starving people? Often that's about sort of understanding what you want to do is minimize the amount of movement of food that's moving across seas, mountains and whatever else. So there's one thing on that thing. Secondly, there's also some great interesting things that are appearing on the technology side that's helping farmers, local farmers who are impacted by climate change, helping those farmers deal with how do you predict when you're actually going to plant your seeds how do you make seeds that are more resilient to the rains not coming at the normal time and then you know the things like risk insurance and early early warning which allows people to move their livestock to move away all of those sorts of things so it's it's mindfulness and intentionality but actually it's lots of little detailed things about what are the challenges and coming up with solutions how do you deal with in your just in your brain the, all the things you're
0: dealing with and everyone seems to have gone bananas about NFTs or, you know, blockchains and bitcoins and, and that you've got hundreds and hundreds of millions of people who are, like, as you say, walking in the wrong direction to starvation. How does your brain not explode on a daily basis at that inequality of it all? But also, is there a connect? what's the connect between this ludicrous high tech and i'd love you to talk about the the whole elon musk thing if you can you know when a swanky ass billionaire says well if it could be solved by money i'll solve it you know like it's just these two worlds these two realities both of which are happening do
2: you connect the two in your head or does it just make you explode? There's two ways that you can think about it. One thing is, I mean, Bitcoin and, and the whole blockchain, you know, we are often having to get cash. We give, I think, I think we gave last year $4.1 billion of cash into some places which are deeply insecure. What happens when a country goes into conflict? Its bank, its central repository where you trust disappears. Blockchain is being used to help deliver cash. Two people, two refugees. You know, in Syrian refugee camps, we we cut tie cash not to a card or a voucher to the iris scan. So I was when I was in. I'm trying to remember the name of the refugee camp last time I was in Syria. The women are shopping, and they go through and they iris scan to get through. This technology is helping us be efficient. So, and why is that important? Because then we can be secure that the person who's getting that is the woman in the family that needs to get that. The woman I met who said, come back and have roast chicken with me. So sorry. That that
0: has blown my head off. So somebody who's in a refugee camp is getting paid through the eye, as it were. And, And I totally get why that's a benefit. I'm just, I'm blown away that that is how we're operating.
2: It's amazing. Yeah. At the same time, you know, the unbelievable injustice. And I mean, the Elon Musk conversation was really interesting, First of all, you know, there is a basic injustice about the fact that there is all this wealth in the world and governments, they are suffering because of the impact of COVID and yet some people have made an awful lot of money out of this situation. And it's its a kind of one-time ask. It wasn't a lots of time, it's a one-time ask. Just come in because this is a particularly... So like a
0: sort of global windfall tax. Like if you made shed loads during the pandemic, you you should pay
2: a large amount of money just once. To help everybody who nearly died. On the other hand, you know, Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, any of those people, you know, we can work together. For us, the thing is, is that the tech potential can turn around, make more cost efficient, deliver better. Those brilliant minds need to come and help us actually be able to deal with the problems we have.
1: It's very interesting because a cynic like me for a long time was like, these big organisations, you know, most of the money goes into admin and you and you forget that, yes, you need the admin minds and, and the hands and the marketers to make the efficiencies go up. And I guess that's what, I mean, like, maybe, maybe instead of money, not instead of money, with the money, minds like Elon need to be put in. Maybe they need to donate their time as much as they donate their minds.
2: 100%, you know. You know the money is just sort of get us through this, but actually it's those minds and that ability to change those things it's so important the one thing I want to be cautious about is sometimes there's technology or innovations which are not actually dealing with the problems which is being faced by the Kenyan farmer is being faced i i mean i I think we have to listen to people because you know you'll have brilliant engineers who happen to be refugees who have an answer to a problem they're seeing for people listening to this who aren't.
0: Elon, um, or (laughs) systems experts or logistics drivers. Like, what
2: can a normal person do to interact and support the World Food Programme's agenda? Well, I mean, there's obviously giving money. And I, you know, I... I, I, (laughs) Every single dollar does make a difference. And, you know, I would say the Share the Meal, go to the Share the Meal app, straightforward support for us. We will be at some point asking people to do something more interesting and creative around school meals. But watch this space, because if we can get 60 or 70 governments to absolutely do what Benin has done, governments of Benin have invested in a school meals program. So, they've, I think there are 57% of kids are getting school meals. They're aiming to get to 75%. That's fantastic. We could get the world to step up and have school meals for all those kids who need school meals. So, watch this space. There's something coming.
0: Wow. I mean, just such a breadth of knowledge of this system and what's wrong, but also what can be done. I find her fascinating to listen to. Sort of frightening, but also inspiring.
1: Yeah, it, it ta- must take a lot to have the, the world of food security and the world of hunger in your head because it is such a complex thing.
0: It is a lot. And unfortunately, one of the scenarios that we were predicting or fearing has now happened. And Russia has invaded Ukraine, which is having a huge impact already on this goal. And it's twofold, right? One is you have millions of displaced people already and displaced people struggle to access food. And also that country is a huge global food producer, which is weird because we really need to think about why, like she was saying, why is food moved around the world in such a crazy fashion when we really need to look at what can we grow where we are?
1: Yeah, the local solutions. There's the interesting part for me in what uh, Corinne was talking about when, Solutions were found for the farmers. And growing up on a farm, I kind of saw this global idea of farming and its drawbacks. Maize has grown so much in South Africa, but it pulls so much from the earth. And it's like, maybe we should go backwards and look at what the earth actually was. Because in South Africa, the staple here was not maize, which it is now. The staple here was sorghum. And most people don't even know about sorghum. So sheep aren't from South Africa. They're a desert animal, you know. And it's like, oh, this doesn't make local sense. This isn't the solution.
0: It would be like if we started now in the UK trying to grow coffee. Yeah. <laughs> but it's it's not warm enough. Well, let's build a very,
1: very strong greenhouse with huge heaters. <laughs> you know? It's like silly. We shouldn't do that. Exactly. And when I got a chance to talk to a sous chef and not just sue in the way that you understand it, S-I-O-U-X Because ah. this is a Native American chap Sean Sherman Who is a, a restaurateur Of indigenous food And we don't even think about America As having indigenous food And we know the effect of The farming that is currently happening in America And the answer was there under their feet The entire time I'll let him explain it Because obviously I don't know
3: I'm enrolled with the Oglala Lakota Sioux Tribe in South Dakota. My reservation is one of the largest reservations in the United States, but it's also been the poorest area in the United States ever since its inception, just over hundred years ago. And there's just a lot of work to do out there with food food security and food equity and uh, nutrition access and all sorts of things. So we kind of made it a mission to try and get Indigenous foods uh, to be normalized out there and to showcase uh, the beauty of Indigenous knowledge and, and apply some of that knowledge in today's world right now.
1: So growing up on that reserve, I mean, what was your relationship with food? I mean, like, what kind of food were you actually growing up with
3: the food that i had access to was really primarily the commodity food program because like a lot of families on pine ridge we didn't have a lot of money I did grow up hunting so we did have some wild foods uh, I did grow up uh, foraging a few pieces that we knew out there on the plains but largely our Lakota and traditional food systems were, were colonized and removed from us um, so you know I grew up with government canned beef and government uh, cheese and government cornflakes and all the things you know so that was that was my pantry
1: that's fascinating I'm, I'm, I really like as a native of here in South Africa and uh, sharing the similar stories that you that you talk about I mean I'm now a vegetarian because I looked back at how we used to consume and like you know things like the, the the spilling of blood to my people was such a sacred thing that it started jarring with the idea of this mass commodified meat where I'm like I, I, this doesn't mean anything to where my people are from but now in contrast to what you want to cook now what were you cooking just before you, you turned the tide
3: Well, you know, I'd worked for quite a few different restaurants. So I was working with a Spanish restaurant, Italian restaurant, French restaurant, lots of American style bistros that just kind of fusionized everything. Um, But now, you know, we're just focused on these indigenous foods and we cut out colonial ingredients completely. So we just removed things that didn't exist here. So for us. There's no, and in the foods that we're making, we're not utilizing wheat flour, cane sugar, um, dairy products, beef, pork, or chicken, but we are utilizing a lot more plant diversity. There's just a lot of cool varietals of corns and beans and squash and chilies and things like that that we use constantly.
1: I am like you just say corn, but I know there's different types of corn that you guys have. I like how many varieties of those are there?
3: Yeah, there's still hundreds of varietals of corn out there. You know, in our restaurant, we probably have, I don't know, maybe 10 varieties of corn because we have like blue corn, we have purple corn, we have yellow corn, we have white corn. We have a couple different kinds of spotted flint corns. So there's orange corns. You sound like the forest gump of corn. <laughs> <There> <laughs> you can fried yeah. corn. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah,
3: and then we just do all that stuff with it because, like, we have nixmalized corn and dried corn and <laughs> ground corn. And- but
1: looking back at that history, you've created—I uh, want to say it right—a in Minneapolis, uh, a new restaurant that you've opened up mm-hmm. on sacred indigenous land. Tell 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 me more about
3: that. I mean, no matter where we are in North America, we're standing on indigenous land. So everywhere is sacred indigenous land when it comes down to it. You know, we happen to be on the side of this really beautiful spot that where those waterfalls used to be. That was kind of the landmark that created the city of Minneapolis around it. Um, but, you know, industrialization age kind of destroyed the waterfalls and now there's just concrete skirting and locks and dams and stuff here. But the site that we're on is uh, in the dakota who were the people here first that, that was called awamany omni and we took the short name which is just Owamni. and
1: at the restaurant like what is your star dish Cause i'm trying to imagine the food now i don't obviously if you're talking indigenous american food i'm like ah a burger
3: <laughs> what is the
1: actual <laughs> indigenous plate what is your star dish at Owamni?
3: Well, you know, we just, you know, we're experimenting. So we're not trying to recreate the past. We're trying to just understand, you know, what is indigenous foods, creating indigenous pantries, and then evolving the food for this new generation. We try to make food taste exactly where we are. So we might have a dish that might have like wild rice, wild blueberries, rose hips, sunchokes, uh, walleye, which is a fish. And then like all those ingredients, you can just stand in one spot and look around and see all those pieces right there, you know, and build a dish that makes sense, you know.
1: The American palate is now, I mean, like there's so refined sugars and and all these things that are easy to eat. How have you found changing palates or are, are people's palates so ready for this? They didn't even know, like when you discover something uh, that you didn 't really think you 'd even love, or is it something that people have to learn to love
3: I think that you know we 're just putting it in front of a people because like uh you know we 've always we 've been calling this food ironically foreign because it 's literally the food of where we 're standing, you know, and that goes back for so long, and people just being like, "Oh, what is that you know but you know because we 're just using all these kind of tree species around us, like balsam fir and white cedar and pine and spruce, and we have all these herbs like bergamots and hyssops and wild mints and wild gingers and wild garlics and wild onions. And there's just all sorts of stuff to play with, you know, and like the typical American diet, they just don't have that much plant diversity in their diet. And plus they're using just mainly flavors from, from Europe. So they've largely, the Western diets just largely ignored like this amazing continent that we live on that just has so much food around us, you know? Um, And there's just so much knowledge there with the indigenous peoples to realize like everywhere you look, you see food and medicine and we just tie that together. And you can apply that commonality anywhere around the world. You know, it's the same situation with people's indigenous to South Africa or India or Southeast Asia, Australia, New Zealand, Hawaii, South America, you know, so it's just looking at commonalities of indigenous knowledge bases and understanding how indigenous foods are just really vastly superior to the Western diet when it comes down to it, because typically it's going to be low glycemic, low in salts, lots of plant diversity, um, just more interesting protein choices that's less damaging to the environment. You know, everything from insects to different kinds of birds and whatever's out there, you know. It's just like looking at, thinking about, like, where are you? And, like, what is the history of the land that you're standing on? And how did the indigenous people survive there for millennia before uh, colonization happens? And, you know, what were the diets? Because you're going to find that things like tooth decay didn't even exist. But now that we've been colonized, you know, we're on these high glycemic diets. Where we're being fed a lot of just bad Bad carbs and lots of sugars, and we just have a lot of issues. We have obesity, we have heart disease, we have, you know, just all sorts of uh, physical ailments that we're literally doing to ourselves because of the food access that we have today. So I think there's just a really important push to try and go back, um, to try and eat a better ancestral diet, a cleaner diet, include a lot more wild foods, and have a better understanding of our environments, um, and promote a lot of these uh, food businesses that are slowly starting to come around and some of these efforts to have you know, ancestral foods on our plates in front of us today.
0: Oh, that was interesting to me. But you know what? That has made it very clear in my mind, something I've always struggled to define. Often the things that we do that are bad for the world end up being really bad for us as well. So the ridiculous Western diet that we've imposed on ourselves and and anyone else who will listen is also making us really sick. Like so many things that he was saying, let's just take it back.
1: But I think what's very important to also note is he didn't just go, let's just go back. He went, how can I use them in a modern way? And I think that's very important because I was like, okay, you're making old school food. What were native people eating in uh, 1632? And he was like, no, 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 no. Let's take the knowledge of this is good and let us serve it to uh, the current world and looking into the future
0: exactly exactly,
1: yeah, I mean, like so much so much gets solved with modern day things like just refrigeration solve so many of the problems that the modern farming was trying to solve before they couldn't refrigerate back in the day, so
0: that's so true <laughs> we've We've gone from indigenous and local to exploding population and global. And then the mistake we've made is that we've absolutely bought the argument that, ah, oh, well, you need industrial farming and you need pesticides and you know, you need this sort of monster that we've built because we've got to feed seven and a half billion, eight billion, nine billion people. But actually, it's, there's all these other things that we also now have, like refrigeration and technology to look at what's growing when and predict the weather. And mm. so we don't need pesticides and awful extractive farming. We need to put the best of the old with everything we've got now and create like a regenerative movement, which is actually happening. I can see it where I live. I mean, literally in the southwest of England, it's a hotbed of craft farming if you've got craft beer. <laughs> You cannot move for sourdough bakers. But I think it's actually happening at a, at a seed and a soil level, which is really exciting. Which brings me on to our next guest, actually. This is a fascinating story of a celebrity DJ turned craft farmer just down the road from me. He is on a mission to change the way we farm in this country, starting with the soil, but hopefully starting a global movement. <laughs>
4: If you reduce the time that humans have been on Earth to 24 hours, then until 11.59, we were foraging. And for the last minute, we've been feeding ourselves with uh, agriculture. Within that minute, there's already been 10 or 12 or maybe more civilizations that have failed because their agricultural systems have failed. The vast majority of the world's agricultural soils are dramatically degraded to the point where if we keep doing what we're doing, we've maybe got 50 or 60 harvests left. My name's Andy Cato, and I am one of the, uh, the co-founders of uh, Wild Farmed, which is a movement for a, a more diverse and wilder kind of farming in the UK. I had a band with a friend of mine called Groove Armada. We made records and spent many years on the road touring around the world. I was coming back from a gig one day and um, I picked up a magazine and it had an article about industrial food production and it ended with the line, if you don't like the system, don't depend on it. And that's what led me to a push towards self-sufficiency. So up to that point, I'd never sown a seed in my life. You know, I'd never even thought about doing that. And um, armed with a brilliant book called The Guide to Self-Sufficiency by John Seymour, which is a kind of 70s classic for people wanting to return to the land and live the good life. I started trying to grow food for the family and it, it kind of snowballed from there. Suffice to say that in the first few years, it, it didn't go well. The saw was, was just, well, it's dead. It's totally inert. OK, so what we're looking at now, I have to give it the name Soil, but uh, it's um, a bit of a shadow of soils former self. What we've got are these kind of clods of earth that are absolutely solid. And if we break them apart, searching for any signs of life, it's just um, there's no sign of worms or even slugs or anything. So I was sat on this tractor with these blades flying around, uh, with a pair of goggles on and keeping my mouth shut because there was debris flying everywhere. And then I just realised the total futility of what I was doing. And that was it, really. I was, I was bankrupt, I was um, despairing. And it was at that point that I came across um, the Albert Howard book and his fundamental message of diversity, plants, animals together, that I said to my uh, incredibly supportive wife before I give up, I'd quite like to get a herd of cows. <laughs> so, so that's what we did. And that's when things started to get better. And that's what led to getting obsessed with the idea of growing our crops in pasture. And so then what you end up with is smaller amounts of more nutritious harvests. And then you're confronted with the next problem, which is that our commodity grain markets don't place any value on how things were grown, the ecosystem in which it was grown, its nutritional content, anything. The only thing that commodity markets place a value on is how many tons. But what it means is you've got to start adding value. So I had to start making bread, and then eventually we kind of turned it round we ended up making breads for local schools. We had our own farm shop and we created this nice community. The role of farm in the story of bread is to bring in these growing techniques which allow grains to grow naturally in biodiverse ecosystems, which means that we can farm obviously without the use of any chemicals, but it also creates a soil microbiome in which the plants can flourish and be nutrient dense and there's all kinds of fascinating studies which link the soil microbiome to our gut microbiome and to have one in good health, you have to have the other in good health. By growing grains in that way and then partnering with chefs, restaurants, bakers, schools, whoever, who can transform the flour that comes from that into food in a way which optimizes its nutritional content, that's what we're about. You've got this kind of successful regenerative farm going on But when you zoom out from that farm and look at the landscape around it, it's not pretty. And all of these farmers who, lots of them are friends of mine, incredibly hardworking, incredibly resourceful, but their cultural and financial barriers to changing their practices are enormous. You know, they're hanging on by a thread, these people, uh, because they've been forced down this road and they've been exploited. Mm. Our view was that if we wait for each of these people somehow finding the ways to overcome all of these barriers to change, we're going to run out of ecological road. And so the point of wild farm was, how can we make that as easy as possible? And part of that is coming up with a a biodiverse farming system, which is as easy as possible to implement. And part of that is coming up with a route to market, which allows us to reward the farmers for growing crops in these biodiverse ecosystems. And so by trying to join the two ends of that, these farmers that were helping to adopt new practices and activist consumers, we can create a movement for change. And fundamentally, it's just a, it's a really empowering message. It's like actually, you know, every time you sit down to eat, you can make a difference. Why not produce and eat food from local ecosystems? Ultimately, the driver of this will be the general public, it's the consumer. If they drive this, then everything else is really there to follow. Finding out about where your food comes from, growing any of it that you can yourself, even if it's on the balcony, and spending the time to look up for local producers around you who are doing good things and backing them, that is your point of agency. It all starts with the, with the salt.
0: Something that makes me laugh when I listen to that is the mental journey that goes one minute, I'm an international DJ on and off private jet, you know, living the life. And then the next minute I'm connecting to my food in a way that he's probably never done before. And he's learning like that. It's hard. I mean, you could hear that, couldn't you, in his
1: journey? Yeah. What you couldn't hear was the story of the poor wife was dragged through this journey. (laughs) (laughs) One moment you are in Ibiza, next thing you are knee deep in cow dung and it's your cow dung.
0: <laughs> and you're hungry because it's not working.
1: That's such a huge life change, but it's such a draw to this the simple life, which is not simple. It is such a complicated, like you really are in the complexity of food when you are farming. And he learned that over and over and over.
0: But he's made it, hasn't he? And what I like is that he is very articulate about linking it to we as consumers have the agency to change this as well. So if we will demand only regeneratively produced food, then the market will react to that. And, you know, we have a role to play as people, as the buyers of this stuff.
1: Oh, for sure. You know, our bellies dictate the whole food process. And I think educating yourself on that food progress is a huge part.
0: Like we've become infantilized, perhaps, as a global population. We're reliant on, Mm. you know, depending on where you live, Mm. Amazon, Ocado. The answer is, you know, relearn the ancient skills, add the great tech that we now have access to, and learn to do it for ourselves again. So we actually mature as a species on this planet. It feels like it's almost like we need to grow up.
1: Yeah, we need to grow up. That's a, that's, a, that's the message we're going to live with you. Grow up. <laughs> grow up. <laughs> Eat your veggies.
0: Do not waste. Do not. Ah, well, that's a good segue, actually, because the last section of this episode is all about food waste. Ooh. Because once we've finally grown all of this delicious food in regenerative ways, it's really important that we then don't waste it. Because... As we've established, food waste in our homes is a huge problem and it massively affects climate change because we're using up desperately precious resources to make the stuff. And then when it's left to rot, if it's not used, then it produces methane, which is beginning to be known that is even worse for the environment than carbon. And apparently this is a crazy stat. If food waste were a country on its own, then apparently it would be the third biggest emitter of greenhouse gases in the world. Like third to US and China.
1: I mean, that is messed up. Okay, that is wildly fascinating. So in terms of solutions, I mean, there's only so many soggy breakfasts that one can have to try to solve the world. How do we solve this systemically?
0: Very good question. And I know something about this. Restaurants and supermarkets apparently contribute to 17% of all the food that is dumped. 17? And you think about people are starving. We're overproducing. The system is dumping 17%. And if you think about the number of people who live in cities, then... That's like 50% of the world now. It's going to grow to 70%. And that is where the food gets wasted. So we need cities and their supermarkets and their food systems to get wise on this one. And I'm excited to say the next guest is from a city who's just won a prize, the Earthshot Prize, no less, for a waste free world. Can you guess which city is leading the pack? Uh,
1: people who do not like to waste food. We have to be people who really love food. And the people who love the food the most would have to be uh, Japan. Italy or France? I'm going to go with Italy?
0: It's correct. It's Italy. Really? And I think, yeah, it's Milan. And I think it's not surprising when you think about it. Italians love food. So in 2015, they came up with something called the Milan Urban Food Policy Pact, which is an international agreement among cities all over the world all committing to coming up with sustainable food systems for their city. And I was lucky enough to speak with the vice mayor, Miss Anna Scavuzzo, about Milan's food waste hubs, which is how they've organised themselves to tackle the food waste in the city. And so I asked her, how do they actually work?
5: Local food waste hub had been created a strong and powerful network of actors where each one has a role and a specific task, and the municipality coordinates and guides uh, this process. The hubs works from the morning to the afternoon, and we have the chance to. Uh, involve the activity of organization that in the morning run to the app collect from supermax and then select and prepare baskets for the charities that will come in the afternoon. Uh, In the afternoon charities of the neighborhoods come and pick up the baskets that they will redistribute to beneficiaries such as a vulnerable families homeless people and so on. And we also uh, have the idea to involve schools in this uh, activity through for instance, public school canteens, we promote healthy and more sustainable diets. And also we distribute more than 6,000 doggy bags to children at school to save fruits, bread and desserts that they do not eat and they can bring them at home. Oh, so
1: it's basically it's, it's all centralized so that the government actually involved in organizing and all these leftovers and, uh, and then distributing them. To the charities and the people who actually need it,
0: exactly. But I think it's a really nice partnership between government organization and people power. Yeah, Mm. like there's thousands of people involved in
5: doing this. I think it's super cool.
1: But is I mean, like, how's it going? Is it working? Is it going well? Is it effective?
5: Yes, I think she says it's going well. The results are very important for us. More than one thousand seventy tons of food were collected and distributed in, in each of our. Hub, And it's very important that we are going on also in relationship with other cities that want to, in some way, copy this idea. And I think that we have first from Toronto to Seoul, from uh, Ouagadougou to N'Diamey, a lot of cities very different from each other, but with the same in some way will of be together. It's very important to, in some way, help them to activate and engage the population because cities are community and they have to feel that it's not something that is driven by the city, but they are the city.
1: Okay, wait. Why is everyone else not doing this?
5: I know. Come on, guys, mayors. Maybe we should
0: run for mayor. Maybe Just that's what mayors. we should do next. Run for mayor immediately.
1: Yeah, that's the problem. People like you and me are running podcasts instead of running cities.
0: I think I think London used to try. Well, we once tried, but as effort with us, we got it wrong or lost, you know, got the bored. plan. Like, got bored. Oh, yeah. oh. Ran out of milk and <laughs> had to go to the shop to get more milk for the tea. And then it was, <laughs> oh, what were we doing? I can't remember. And, but no, I know we did try it a few years ago because I used to work with Jamie Oliver and at his food foundation. And we did, there was somebody from Australia who was trying to tell us how to do it. And it drifted.
1: So it wasn't the city doing it necessarily. Someone started a project, but I'm like, this would be a city thing, right? Like, why isn't my city doing it in the same way I expect my city to close a pothole? It's like, yeah, you have people living here and there's a resource that we have for a problem that we have. Why aren't we just doing this? You're quite right. We have so much food in London. I mean, the amount of fast food outlets
0: and restaurants and... But I know we also have a homeless population. I know we also have a poverty problem. I mean, she's got the blueprint, right? She seems yeah. to have the blueprint right there.
1: Yeah, Johannesburg, what are you doing? Yeah, London, what are you doing?
5: I know. Well, I asked her that. Uh, I I don't know exactly if we, I, I have an answer to this question, but this is the 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 mother of all the question in some way it's a sort of state of mind if you think about food from different point of view you reach all the aspects of everyday life you uh, deal with education you fight against poverty you you prevent people from uh, getting sick you can reach for instance at school an education that help us to in some way transform a project as i said in good habits and we can also a raise awareness of the whole community. And so I think it's very important because it's something that uh, we have in common, all the cities, all the countries all over the world. And in some way, also this pandemic period stressed the importance of food and to have the chance to give good food to everybody.
1: That's our entire episode summed up right there.
0: Yeah, thank you very much, Vice Mayor. It's not just food that they've got nailed. It actually demonstrates brilliantly how food really can sit at the centre of the global goals wheel. You know, if children aren't healthy, then they're not going to learn very well. Global goal number four. You know, if you're not having good systems to grow good food, then people aren't going to be making an income. That's goal number one.
1: Oh, Gail, when you rattle off those goal numbers, it's so impressive. (laughs) All right, let's let's be even more impressive. Let us sum up what we've learned today with a little bit of a quick fire 30-second round.
0: 30 seconds of what we can all do to support zero hunger in the world. Okay, let's do it together. I'm going to start. Three, two, one, go.
1: Buy regeneratively grown food. Yes, and learn from indigenous diets also, because that's important for the environment.
0: Yes, and was he eating insects? I'd love to eat insects.
1: And vote for a mayor who is doing the, the right things for food.
0: Find out what makes sense to eat from where you live. I love
1: that one. And in what season. Season makes a big difference.
0: Yep, don't forget the money and the big orgs, like donate money to the World Food Programme.
1: Even schools feeding programmes, you can support those too.
0: Eat uh, your soggy leftovers.
1: Oh, nice one. Um, ah, ah! Te- cut, cut, the, cut the must off your cheese.
0: <laughs> I, mean, I think we kind of, I think we nailed
3: it. <laughs> oh, that was good.
0: What everybody can do to find out how they can achieve goal two and end hunger is go to globalgoals.org because on that site, there's a whole load of tips on how to take action on that goal and all the goals.
1: All right. That's only a little bit of what we've learned. Honestly, in this episode, I've learned a lot. And the most that I've learned out of this is that the solutions are from the small ones that we can all do every single day to the large ones that we can get involved in. And it is exciting to know that they are right there at our fingertips.
0: Totally agree. And also my exciting take out of this one is every time we have a meal, which is, you know, frequent, frequent opportunities to act. I like that.
1: So early in our series and look how far we've come. I can't wait until the next episode. Until then, though, I'm Lois O'Madenga saying cheers, everybody, and do what you can.
0: And I'm Gail Galley saying see you next week. An Idiot's Guide to Saving the World is a Radio Wolfgang production made in collaboration with Project Everyone. The producers were Yelaine Goffin and Holly Fisher. Additional editing by Natalia Rodriguez-Ford. Field recording by Elle Scott. The executive producer was Ellie DiMartino. If you like what you heard, do subscribe. Leave us a review because it helps people find us. And the more people find us, the more people we got out there saving the world. This podcast is supported by Google.org. Thank you so much. Bringing in the best of Google to help solve some of humanity's biggest challenges. Find out more at Google.org.